Hello and welcome to episode 1615 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello. Marcus Stroman accepted the qualifying offer. Hmm. Good news for me in my free agent draft. I didn't think he was going to do it, really. When I drafted him, it was more because I thought the estimate was more than he would get on the open market than because I thought he would actually take it, but he did. So big leg up for me, and I can screw up a bunch of other picks, which I probably will, judging by how last winter went. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if he was convinced by the press conference that Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen gave on Tuesday, which uh, a lot of people were impressed by just because it was competent, which was a change for the Mets, and they said the right things, which is easier than doing the right things, but also hasn't been easy for the Mets in recent years. So don't know if it was that or just the fact that he didn't pitch this year or just the general uncertainty about the market. But I did think when he was tweeting about Tony Rusa on Tuesday and he was making headlines for that too because he said that there was no amount of money that he would take to play for La Russa. And he might sincerely believe that. I, I certainly wouldn't blame him for it, given what we've learned about Larusa. But I think that was probably easier to say, at least if he had an inkling that he was going to accept the qualifying offer and would not be on the open market and thus would not need the White Sox as a, a potential suitor, even if he wasn't going to sign with them. It still would have helped to have them there to drive up offers. So maybe that's why he was so open about that. Maybe not. Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely it's a lot easier to speak your mind when you uh, have a job instead of are looking for a job. I think that is a yes. universal, a universal experience. Right. Yeah. So I was just thinking we're uh, about to hear about the Cy Young winners a few hours after we speak. And we don't know the uh, identities yet, but we do know the top three because uh, they call them the finalists now, even though they are not finalists. It's just a way of drumming up interest in the awards before they actually announce the winners. And we do know that two of the three finalists in the American League and presumably the second and third place people because Shane Bieber is going to run away with that thing. But second and third place will be in some order Hyunjin Ryu and Kenta Maeda. And those are both 2019 Dodgers pitchers that the Dodgers let walk or traded away, decided that they didn't need. And they were not the only starters that the 2019 Dodgers did that with. Rich Hill also was allowed to leave. And the Dodgers also traded Ross Stripling in the middle of the season. That's four of the six starters on the 2019 Dodgers team with the most starts on that roster. And they all left. And the Dodgers didn't really bring in anyone else. I mean, they traded for David Price, who opted out and so didn't end up pitching. So you take away like two-thirds of the the starts almost or, or the top starters from that 2019 team. You don't really replace them, at least with outside additions. They're all good. I mean, Ross Stripling did not have a good season, but was still well-regarded enough that the Blue Jays, a playoff team, traded for him down the stretch to bolster their rotation. And the other three, Rich Hill was his usual effective self when he was available. And then the other two were uh, two of the three best pitchers in the American League and, and second and third place Cy Young finishers. And yet, the Dodgers got better. <laughs> they were on pace to be one of the best teams of all time and won the World Series. And I guess the, the starting rotation was not really their strength. I mean, they were like 11th in starting pitcher war, I think. But it was a, a fine rotation and a solid staff and good enough for them to be the best team in baseball, despite letting all of those excellent pitchers leave and not really replacing them. So I guess that just sort of, to me, speaks to the depth of the Dodgers and just the fact that they really seem to be on a, a different level from anyone else. Yeah, I asked when I was talking about all the trades that the LCS teams had made, and I was uh, sort of ranking them by how well they had worked out on the championship push. I, I asked um, Craig Goldstein whether Dodger fans rue the Maeda trade, given how successful he was. And he's like, no, they just, they don't they don't really care at all. Yeah, they don't even think about it. Probably <laughs> he had he had the second lowest. I mean, short season, but he had the second lowest whip in history. In yeah. history for a qualifying starter. And uh, no no regrets at all. None, yeah. none at all. 
<laughs> I no. mean, maybe there are some somewhere, but I mean, this is the the nice thing about rooting for a team that wins seventy percent of your games of yeah. their games. It's just like what what would you regret? Like every every move brought us here, yeah. And so you don't have to to think about it. I mean, I honestly think that like, like I don't know that there's anything that you could talk yourself into regretting in a world championship season like uh, as far as personnel because it all just feels like well if we had that person then it's a whole different run of simulations and yeah. we might not have been here so uh yeah. also ryu and, and maeda were were both fantastic and their replacements were were basically dustin may and tony gonsolin and mm-hmm. i don't even know if like on an uh, on an inning by inning basis that's probably like a I don't know, quarter of a runs difference in how yeah. well each pair pitched this year. I mean, Gonsolin was, I think, had like the f- fifth-ish best FIP and like around that best ERA plus this year. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, 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 I don't. I think that there's like a some some skepticism of whether that's his true talent level. But arguably, if Gonsolin had pitched a full year in the American League, if he'd pitched a full year and started as many games as Ryu and Maeda started, he might have been a Cy Young finalist. Possibly. Yeah. It's just like they maybe didn't really have a fit for Maeda or, or he didn't, you know, break out in the way that he did with the Twins this year when he was with the Dodgers. And they kind of maybe jerked him around a little bit, maybe underrated him, arguably. They just always had so many pitchers that he was sort of a swingman for them and would be in the bullpen sometimes. And he wanted to start and whether it was because they didn't want to pay him as much as they would have had to pay him if he was starting all the time. Or just because they just didn't really need him to, he didn't really have that leash fully let off while he was with the Dodgers, and and they just let him walk, and it's fine. And uh, yeah, like you wouldn't really change anything in any World Series year, but at least in some World Series winning years, you might say, well, we should have done this or that, and it would have given us a better chance to win. You know, maybe we got a little lucky that we won. In this case, it's not that at all. It's like, yeah, they won. They got the great outcome. But if you simulated it a bunch of times, they would win more than any other team. Like they were just the the best team easily, even though they lost the the two top Cy Young vote getters in that league. And as you said, they just they had May already. They had Gonsolin. Julio Urias pitched more. Bueller's already great. Kershaw had an even better year. Like they just they really didn't need those guys so it's like that's a a solid team's rotation like you could maybe be a playoff team with the rotation of guys that they let go and uh it just didn't face them at all oh i mean you could certainly be a playoff rotation with yeah with the ones they let go so <laughs> all right so here we go the um maeda ryu combined had a 163 era plus and mm-hmm. May and Gonsolin combined at a 176 ERA plus. <laughs> That's a considerably better. In fact, the the two the two rookies were considerably better. They did throw 30 fewer cumulative innings, mm-hmm. but in fact, they started they started 18 games, and the uh, the two that left only started 23. So it's not like they were part timers or anything either. So yeah. yeah, how do you how do you like that? How do you <laughs> like amazing. being able to just produce good ball players all the time <laughs> yeah it seems like the way to live all right and uh, the only other thing i wanted to mention is that neil Payne did an article for 538 on wednesday that is starting a, a series uh, called the little teams that could like the teams that fooled the forecasters and he kicked it off with the 2014 to 2015 royals and how they were one of the great underdog stories in sports and baseball and given just their projections and their Vegas odds and also their recent past as a franchise, they were incredible long shots to do what they did. And just reading the article, I'll link to it so everyone can check it out, but just reminded me how much I enjoyed those teams. Those were maybe the most fun teams, certainly I think of the time that I've written about and talked about baseball professionally, but maybe in my lifetime, like, you know, among teams that I didn't have a rooting interest in. Those teams were just incredible. And who are we talking back... about? I'm sorry, I'm doing Dodgers pitcher math. Can I do quick, quick? I'll just yeah. seal this. But yeah, sure. The year before, Rio won the ERA title, and so yeah. of course, it's not like the Dodgers thought they were 
like they weren't releasing JD Martinez here. Like they knew that that yeah. the, they were letting two two really good key players go. Okay, so they establishing that the year in 2019 before they left, they had a combined ERA of 3.18, and May and Gonsolin had a combined ERA of 3.28. So even <laughs> even before this, the two rookies had. I mean, obviously, again in fewer fewer innings but we're not talking about like eight innings they had each thrown i gonson had thrown 80 and may had thrown i think 30 or so and they had been about as good so all right yeah so are we talking about the orioles or the royals i the, i sort of royals. vaguely heard an <laughs> oh sound <laughs> say yeah. it again who the royals the royals the o yes. royals yes the o royals did you say the o royals or the orioles i did not say that but uh the o royals all right let's let's put o royals in the back pocket for another day all right <laughs> I wrote an article where I called them like the Oreo Royals or something when I, I I combined the the two rosters when they were both terrible just to see if they would be a good team if you put them together and I think they still weren't that good but I think there are some similarities there in that the the Orioles and the Royals both defied the projections and our expectations and the Orioles did it maybe over a longer period but the Royals did it with greater concentrated success and it just brought back the memories of watching those teams and marveling at those teams and like there's just so many individual memories like the you know Alex Gordon not scoring and Eric Hosmer's mad dash and the 2014 wild card game those teams were so much fun I really don't think I've had more fun watching a team and they were not like a, a sabermetrically built team, which in a way made them more fun, except in that people would kind of hold them up as an example of like the way that you should build teams in general or, you know, the why projections are bad and wrong. And I think uh, those lessons I probably didn't agree with on the whole, but those teams if anything, the fact that they weren't like other teams and that they weren't the way that you would normally say teams should be built made them more fun because they kind of broke the mold for that period in baseball. And they had such identifiable traits. Like you just, you knew the things that they did well. They were fast. They were great on defense. They were great at making contact. And they had the fire breathing back of the bullpen. And all of those things were sort of fun to analyze. Like they they had the amazing outfield when they would put their top flight outfield out there. And I remember doing an article on that on how good they were when they put their best defensive outfield in. And then like how good they were when they were ahead because they were able to put that outfield in and then deploy that bullpen. And so they were like a different team when they were winning than when they were losing because they could just shut you down if they managed to get a lead anyway. There were so many great comebacks during those playoff runs and so many memorable plays and games and players. And I just, I love those teams. And I guess they're kind of like the things that people lament that have kind of gone away from baseball, the contact and the speed and all of that. And they were sort of like this, you know, 1980s-esque oasis in mid-2010s baseball. So I don't know when or if we will see another squad like those two, but boy, I really like those teams. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I remember talking about them. Yeah. This was, they were not ancient history. No. They were on this podcast. They were yes. part of this era. Uh, and we said all these things about them. I mean, I think the fun thing about them too was that there was like a two-year period where we updated our priors, right? Like yeah. there was a real, I think the conversation that we were having, if you could somehow graph it on some level of suspicion that we had toward them or mm -hmm. or enjoyment that we got from them it, it was a clear trajectory um and uh it's always fun to go through that process with a team i have really i i, I the hosmer mad dash has grown in my memory yeah. into into just about maybe my favorite play of the last decade i'm trying to think like there are some plays that were big deals at the time that when I've rewatched them recently, because I did a thing, I re I did a thing on every World Series, and so I watched a ton of World Series action. And like the play that, for instance, the play that ended one of the World Series games in 2013, where there was a like an uh, a th an interference call at third base, uh, where like a a runner was trying to go to third. 
The throw got past the third baseman. He got up, and then the third baseman tripped over him trying to get the ball. And then the runner was thrown out at home, but it was ruled that the third baseman had obstructed him in pursuit. Do you remember that play? Vaguely. Okay. At the time, it was like the world had ended. It was all we talked about. It was like the biggest deal in the world. Everybody wrote about it immediately. We all were arguing like we were angry, dissecting what the rules said and everything. And I rewatched it again. And I thought, I have no emotional feeling about this play. And it, it ended a World Series game. It was a walk-off World Series game. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, uh-huh. uh, and then I watched the Hosmer thing and I almost started crying. Like, it's <laughs> so beautiful. I can't, yeah. I still can't believe they ran on the, the scouting report of the first baseman's throwing arm. That to me is yeah. the most unlikely piece of information to ever come in handy first yeah. baseman throws a ball competitively about once every 10 games and they they had it they had yeah. it it's incredible that was another fun thing about yeah like the advanced scouting was a big part of their winning or at least it was presented as being a big part with that and you know lester not making pickoff throws and all these things it was like they seemed to have an edge at picking apart opponents flaws and vulnerabilities and that was even more fun because it, it was like they had picked up something and they were actually exploiting it. So, yeah, just a really great, fun team. I still like don't think they were necessarily even the best teams in baseball in those years, but, boy, they were the most successful and they were the most fun. So, mm. all right, I've got some emails here to answer. This one comes from Matthew, Patreon supporter. He says... I was recently reading the Wikipedia article for Noodles Han. It noted that after his retirement from baseball around 1910, he continued to work out in the Cincinnati Stadium before Reds' home games for decades afterward. In the 1940s, players were shocked to discover who he was, having had no idea Han had been a star player in his time. To them, he was just an old man who exercised and hung around. For six seasons, from 1899 to 1904, Han had about six war and pitched around 300 innings per year. My question is, how much better would he have to have been to be more immediately recognizable 30 years later? And is that threshold any different now than it was in 1940? So you know that I responded to this question uh, sort of undercutting the premise here a little, which... Mm -hmm. I believe this story is probably made up uh-huh. and that there was actually no no situation where the players had never heard of him and like that my guess is that it made a good story to say Noodles Han has been working out for 20 years and no one knew who he was but that probably it's not really that true. Mm-hmm. Like I think if there was an old guy hanging out at the ballpark is that that's what was happening he was working out at the ballpark and the players would see him every yes. day but they never they never knew who he was. I just think that like the first day you'd go, who's that? Yeah. And then they'd say Noodles Han. He's a former ball player. And you go, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll read you the passage because uh, I found the passage in the book. It's called The Cincinnati Reds. It's a history of the team by Lee Allen. And it was published originally in 1948. So it wasn't published like a long time after this period, which maybe makes it more credible. But it says, Noodles always kept himself in perfect shape. After he had retired from the game, he became a meat inspector in Cincinnati, and in the afternoons he used to go out to the park and put on his old uniform and work out. As late as 1946, at the age of 68, he still performed this ritual. Although almost 70, he would have pitched batting practice had manager Bill McKechnie permitted. Some of the players in the early 1940s, upon joining the Reds, wondered who he was. So this is... uh, Yeah, but I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah, sure, of course he would. (laughs) And then it says, unlike some old timers, Noodles was never one to get a rookie off in a corner and tell him how baseball used to be played or should be played. He was never a mine of misinformation about the game and was even reluctant to discuss his own career. But the players found out. Steve Mesner, who played third base for the Redlegs during World War II, happened across a faded clipping one day that told about Noodles' no-hitter in 1900 and his feat of striking out 16 in a game the following year. Could this be that old fellow who works out with us, Mesner thought? Well, what do you know? If it hadn't been for that, the players would have considered Han only a nice old guy they say used to pitch for the Reds. So what exactly are we supposed to be impressed with here? 
<laughs> so are, is it that they didn't know upon hearing his name that they didn't recognize his name? Is that is that what it is? Yeah, I guess so. I, I don't know how he happened to cross this old clipping. It seems like someone must have given it to him or something. But if they were just saying, hey, there's this old guy working out here, who's that? And if someone said, oh, it's someone who used to pitch for the Reds and they left it at that. Yeah. I guess it's that they don't know he was Noodles Han, who was uh, a big star or... If told that it was Noodles Han, maybe that didn't really register for them. Yeah, because if they, I mean, I'm sort of trying to parse the 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 shock here. So the play, players were shocked to discover who he was, having no idea Han had been a star player at the time. So they weren't shocked to discover he was a a ball player. No, I guess they knew that he was working out because he used to be with the team. He wasn't just some some guy who snuck in every day. So they knew he was a former player. And then after, at some point, they were shocked to find out that he had been a, a really good player. I guess so. Okay, yeah. so quick little aside. But when I was doing the uh, the series on players whose wars Mike Trout had been passing, there yeah. was a player uh, on that list. So Hall of Famer, who was one of the, um, you know, he has 70-some war in his career. He was a big-time star. Uh, Honus Wagner said he was the, uh, you know, accepting himself the greatest shortstop who had ever lived. I, I don't think Wagner said accepting myself, but I think it was implied that he was rating the other shortstops. And I noted in my write-up that there had been an article five years earlier about Wagner saying this about him and saying, while most players, uh, most young fans have never even heard his name or don't even know who he is or something. And this was five years after he'd retired. Five years after he'd retired, already the world had moved on because this was a world where you didn't have, maybe you didn't have 30,000 baseball cards that you saved until, you know, you were 40. And maybe you didn't have the internet and you didn't have broadcasts telling you fun facts about players and recounting trivia. And so memories of players back then were very quickly (laughs) erased, I think. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're talking about a Hall of Famer who five years later was not known by the average baseball fan, according to this article that I had. So it doesn't surprise me that Noodles Hahn would have a, a harder time staying in the public imagination than a pitcher today would. But even with that said, Noodles Hahn, okay, he, uh, you know, he, he had some bold ink, but he was a pretty good pitcher for a, a fairly short career. Yeah. But like for, for Hall of Fame caliber for a player. Few, yeah, just, okay. You know, so, eight-year career. Yeah. So do you think, though, that the—I'm going to ask you—this is a two-part question. Do you think the average player today would recognize this name? And then B, would, would you find it, like, in any way criminal or, like, heartbreaking or shocking or notable that they wouldn't recognize this name? So Mike Cuellar. Would, would the average— <laughs> Player know who Mike Cuellar is? No. I don't think so. Of course no. not. No. Of course not. And in the six, late 60s and early 70s, he was every bit the pitcher that Noodles Hahn was. He was a mm-hmm. four-time 20-game winner in six seasons. He led the league in winning percentage twice. He led the league in shutouts. He was, uh, you know, three-time Cy Young, you know, vote-getter. He won the Cy Young. And probably, I mean, there are obviously baseball fans and baseball players who know who he is, but if he were working out in Baltimore and six Orioles, maybe four Orioles were hanging around batting practice and said, who's the guy running on the warning track? And they said, Mike Cuellar. They'd go, oh, who's he? Right. And that would be (laughs) natural. I think that would be fine. I I don't feel like it's a tragedy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I would say that Jerry Kuzman probably, Mm -hmm. probably would get mostly not recognized and for a period jerry kuzman was i would say at a similar level to noodles hunt so i don't know i don't know that this is unusual is what i'm saying no i don't think so and you often hear about players who just don't know much about baseball bill hands bill hands do you think anybody knows who bill hands is ben do you know who bill hands is (laughs) he was on the podcast so is that right (laughs) Yeah, Did he's I, wait, former podcast guest. Is he the guy that we called? Yes. About the thing? <laughs> yes. He, he allowed a lot of home runs to pitchers, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you forgot about Bill Hands already. So. I did forget about Bill Hands. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, a comparable to uh, Noodles Han, Hans Hands. Noodles Hands. <laughs> and Noodles, uh, like, first of all, like, I know Noodles Han 
mostly because his name is, is Noodles, right? Like if if he was Frank Khan, which is his actual name, I would not know him either. Now this is, you know, it's been a long time since the 1940s and I'm not in Cincinnati, but that's a big part of the reason why I know who Noodles Han is. But also, yeah, you hear all the time about young players who don't know even more famous players than that, maybe from further back in time, but like players make the major leagues because they're good at baseball, not because they're good at baseball history. And Often those things will correlate to some degree, like, you know, you grow up playing baseball, maybe you're interested in the sport and you read about it, but not always. Sometimes you're just focused on playing, focused on the field, and you don't know baseball history, and that's fine. And, you know, I think it's nice when certain players really care about the history or, you know, like you hear Joey Votto talk about the history and and how into it he is. That's great, but not everyone is wired that way. And, like, young people in general just uh, don't know a lot of things because they weren't around when those things were happening. That's true. You do learn a lot. Lot from t- like twenty three to forty as a as a person yeah. who's in the land, I've learned a lot in that sure. seventeen year period. Yeah. Just because you don't know somebody yet doesn't mean that they have been like lost to history. You just mm-hmm. don't know them yet. You've got more learning to do. Yeah, there have been plenty of times I can't think of examples off the top of my head, but when I've heard about something and like didn't understand how I didn't know that before or, you know, it seemed like common knowledge and yet somehow it wasn't my knowledge. It had just missed me somehow. Or like a few years ago, remember when uh, Cody Bellinger didn't really know who Jerry Seinfeld was or, or wasn't aware of Seinfeld the show and everyone was piling on and mocking him and yeah, okay, I mean, <laughs> Seinfeld is is pretty pervasive and it was surprising that he didn't really know what it was, but like he was born, you know, after its run, like he didn't remember the peak of Seinfelds and maybe he's just not into sitcoms or something. So, so what that is sort what of thing are, yeah. happens? What are we getting at then? What is our I'm not sure what I'm I'm I, not sure what I'm agitated about. Is it are we just saying that this isn't a story worth telling? Yeah, I don't think it's that surprising. <laughs> okay. I guess I do think maybe it would be harder today for this to happen i i don't know i i could see it being the other way too because like uh baseball was a bigger deal at that point in american society and you know it was like the dominant sport and so maybe kids would grow up knowing more about the history on the other hand like you you didn't know what anyone looked like i mean unless you were going to the games like uh you couldn't watch mlb tv like you you weren't seeing full color photographs of people in the newspaper like they weren't doing tv interviews all the time like there are probably a lot more famous players than noodles han that nobody would have recognized just because in 1900 no one knew what they looked like or you know saw like baseball cards or you know etchings in newspapers or something but that's not the same so i think in some ways like if you're famous now maybe you're you're more visible and people know your likeness a little bit better than they would have at that time but mostly i don't think anything has really changed and if anything like the fact that baseball has receded somewhat from the the popular imagination and all these other sports are popular and all these other forms of entertainment are popular like coming up today even if you live in that city like unless that guy has been a a broadcaster with that team you know has had some kind of second life with Mm -hmm. that franchise other than just working out every day in the park by himself yeah like if he's been around then you might know but if not if he just uh, retired and went away then i don't think today's young players would know them any more than the 1940s reds knew noodles han okay so hypothetically you get a hundred ball players modern ball players and you say wilbur wood was a major league pitcher tell me one thing about him how <laughs> many how many people do you think would be able to tell you one thing about wilbur wood <sighs> One? Yeah. Zero. Wilbur Wood, you know, won 20 games four years in a row. Yeah. You know, had a 1.91 ERA one year. Cy Young finishes third, second, fifth in three consecutive years. Yeah. Maybe this is, I mean, I don't know. If you you think that the Noodles Han, the story of the Noodles Han thing is is about, like, I don't know, is, is about pathos, then I guess there's a lot of it going around and we should be... 
constantly sad about the the turnover of ballplayer biographies, but I think it's more just the nature of the sport that, you know, like the fact that we watch players age into obsolescence is already the baked in sadness of the game. And there are lots of ways that that shows up in, in how we consume baseball stories and baseball careers and and all of that and so i would say that though the noodles han thing is is pretty pretty normal pretty natural like mm-hmm. i don't know there i guess there are some fields where this doesn't really happen like if you in a way if you are like say a, a musician who has a bunch of top 10 hits or is a is a big star in your era in a lot of ways you don't get forgotten there are occasionally they're forgotten musicians but mainly because they didn't manage to to hit they like the stories of musicians who were forgotten tend to be geniuses who were overlooked or didn't get a chance but music i guess builds on previous music and so you don't you wouldn't have a, a situation i don't think where noodles han of 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 you know of rock and roll or the noodles han of r&b would mm-hmm. get would get forgotten generally speaking, 45 years later. It's different in sports, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe it's not totally different. Like if you're a player who does something innovative, you can be influential and other people can model themselves on your delivery or your batting stance or something about the way you played the game. But it's also similar in that, you know, I'm thinking of this interview Conan O'Brien did with the New York Times last year where they were talking about like how he wants to go out or is he okay if his show, if his audience just kind of keeps going along and maybe gets smaller and smaller over time like does he have to have some dramatic exit and he said this is going to sound grim but eventually all our graves go unattended and he continued i had a great conversation with albert brooks once when i met him for the first time i was kind of stammering i said you make movies they live on forever i just do these late night shows they get lost they're never seen again and who cares And he looked at me and he said, what are you talking about? None of it matters. None of it matters? No, that's the secret. In 1940, people said Clark Gable is the face of the 20th century. Who thinks about Clark Gable? It doesn't matter. You'll be forgotten. I'll be forgotten. We'll all be forgotten. And then Coney said, it's so funny because you'd think that would depress me. I was walking on air after that. (laughs) So it could be depressing that uh, Noodles Han wasn't remembered, that we'll all be forgotten. Or it could be liberating because uh, if you screw up, it doesn't matter. (laughs) No one will remember it after a while. And, you know, what's the use of, like, uh, feeling any pressure or competing with anyone? Because uh, even if someone else is more famous or more successful in the short term, eventually their grave will go unattended too. (laughs) And there's something nice about, I mean, you do what you do to be appreciated by the world that you're in. And it's, I think, better to focus on that part of it than to than to think about doing what you do to be misunderstood by a future world that doesn't have the same context, that uh-huh. didn't like, isn't living in the same period, doesn't have the same, the same, all the same background going on that informs what you're contributing to the world. And so it's like a little bit different with with sports, but I almost yeah, I almost do feel like it like you would maybe rather have the thing be uh, have an expiration date so that like future generations can't continue to mangle it. Yeah, uh-huh. true. I mean, because because really, like if you know, if we really did a deep dive into Noodles Han, it would only take about five minutes before I said something like, well, baseball was fake back then. He sucked. Like, (laughs) and that's not fair to him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) True. Okay, this is a question from Nicholas. Baseball is something of an anomaly because it awards two MVPs each year, while most other sports only award one. The historical reason for awarding the two MVPs made sense since the two leagues never played each other in the regular season. Although that logic has fallen away with the growth of interleague play, it actually makes sense in a different way for the COVID-inspired 2020 season, where each region forms a self-contained league. Would you be in favor of awarding three MVPs and Cy Young's Rookie of the Year's, etc. this year, one each for the East, Central, and West divisions, regardless of league? Yeah, definitely in the logic holds up and 100% on board with this. It feels really weird to me that I continue to, in my head sometimes, or in my actual writing sometimes, 
say that somebody led the National League in ERA this year or that they led the American League in war this year when the National League was not playing National League teams primarily Mm -hmm. or or American League teams. They were not playing a unified uh, group of opponents. And it makes perfect sense that, yes, you have three different universes that were not overlapping this year. It makes sense that you would have basically one MVP per site uh, if you think of each region as a as a competitive site. Now, the problem, what Nicholas is not foreseeing, is what a pain this would be for designing your website that <laughs> listed all the MVPs. And <laughs> I think that to some degree, you have to give Sean Foreman an easier job and just pretend that a lot of a lot of the illogic of this year doesn't exist, so that his his website can still have nice straight lines. <laughs> Yes, I agree. I don't think it's worth breaking the precedent because, uh, yeah, I don't know if it even really makes sense to continue to have AL and NL differentials when really the separation between those leagues, even in a normal year, are kind of gone. But if we're going to keep doing that, then, yeah, we might as well just stick with the tradition because it just doesn't matter that much. I I guess there's someone out there who... uh, could win an MVP or a Cy Young if you were giving out three this year, and maybe that would change the way they're perceived or something. But it's 2020, and it's the short regular season, and it's two months, and so people are going to discount that accomplishment anyway, especially if you're not someone who would normally be a, an MVP favorite. So I don't think it's that big a deal, but I agree philosophically that it makes sense. All right. Well, this is sort of along those lines. Brock says, I was listening to Ben and Meg discuss the DH issue on an episode from last week, and Ben mentioned that he was curious how anti-NLDH people felt having lived the DH lifestyle for a 60-game season. I was thinking about that question and came up with a takeaway and question of my own. The thing I liked about the NL having no DH was always no more than the fact that the leagues were substantively different. It honestly has nothing to do with the pitcher hitting or not. I imagine there are some DH proponents that don't feel the same, but I imagine some would agree that simply having two sets of rules was something they enjoyed about the DH issue. So my question is, what rule could we add or change in the National League that would have a similar impact in exchange for permanently adopting the DH? Meaning it cannot be a purely superficial rule, it has to substantively change the game roughly as much as pitcher hitting, but also not dramatically shift how the game is played, so no pits in the outfield. Curious what you all would come up with. You say substantively. Yes. Okay. Yeah, all right. I don't. Um, <laughs> let's see. This is a good... <laughs> We're not going to get into that. This is a good question. I have to, I want to, I, I think I want to, I think I have something to say about this question. It's a tough, it's a tricky one. What I might have to say is, wow, this is, this is tough. But yeah. can I, while I think about this, can I just do the quick stat blast? Sure. Uh, this is a silly one. By the way, I've been having a hard time remembering which ones I've done recently. Have I done the triples versus doubles yet? No. No. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I've been having a lot of conversations with myself in my head lately. <laughs> All right. Along those lines, I hope I haven't done this one yet, but there is an MLB rule. It's rule 6.07, and it relates to um, what happens if batters bat out of order in the lineup, various situations arising, in the words of the rule, arising from batting out of turn. And for this, they give an example, and I've always been kind of like bothered by this example. The, they give an example of a lineup, and the lineup has nine nine hitters, and those hitters, the rule book names the hitters, and those hitters are named Abel, Baker, Charles, Daniel, Edward, Frank, George, Hooker, Irwin. <laughs> And so Abel's leading off, Irwin is batting ninth. And they give examples where, you know, Abel is called out and Baker is the proper batter and so on and so forth. Now, does anything about that list, that lineup, bother you? (laughs) I'm wondering where they got Hooker. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a name. It's a 
Is it? <laughs> John Lee? It's a last last name. Okay. Yeah, but, it is. A, but, it is a but last. But some name. of those were not last names, That's, right? Thank you. That's <laughs> yeah. what bothers me. It's always bothered me. Okay, so let's just quickly go through Abel. First name or last name? Uh, first, at yeah. least the, the famous Abel. Okay. Baker. Mm, last. Last. Charles. First. Either. Could right? be either. Yeah. Definitely either. You got yeah. your Josh Charles, your Ray Charles. You got a lot of Charles. Yeah. Daniel. Could be either, but could be either, but mostly. I'd say first, yeah. Okay. Edward. First. First. Definitely first. This is like basically has never been an Edward last name. <laughs> like there's been a lot of Edwards, but mm-hmm. Edward first name, no. Frank. First. For yeah, kind of both, I would say. But yeah, more first. Definitely more first. George. First. Well, could be either. Could be I guess, either, but, yeah. yeah. Eddie Eddie George. Uh, yeah. all right. Hooker. <laughs> I think Hooker's gotta be last. But, last. There's yeah. just no doubt about that. And then yeah. and then and then Irwin. Mm-hmm. Irwin could be either. Could be either. More more last, I think. Yeah, I think so. So I have never been able to figure out what are they, which are, do they want us to think these are? Because you definitely have instances, I think, where Hooker can almost only be a last name. It it and so then do they all have to be you wouldn't switch. You wouldn't switch in the middle from first to last. And yet Edward almost certainly has to be a first name. And so I wondered where did this lineup come from? Who who are these players? Who some some whoever wrote this must have had ball players in mind. They must be a student mm-hmm. of the game. So I wanted to see whether this lineup makes more sense for first names or last names. So I have uh, I've gone through baseball history now. Uh, something that's important to know is that this rule appears to date to 1957. That there I don't know if this specific wording was, but according to an article by Mark Pankin in the uh, Saber Baseball Research Journal from 2013, Rule 6.07, the current. Rule 6.07 has been in place since 1957, and I think that kind of makes sense with these names. These names, whether first or last, they have a sort of a a 1957 uh, vibe to them. And in fact, I tried to figure out whether Abel, Baker, Charles is like it, whether this sequence of names has like kind of a you know Wilco, Tango, Foxtrot sort mm-hmm. of thing, where like these are these are known words for these and it doesn't appear to be the case although i did find an example from that time period where somebody had had three stoves in like a factory and they named the stoves abel baker and charles i believe something like that <laughs> so there was maybe some hint of abel baker charles maybe being a thing anyway so i have uh two lineups here where are they in the lineup abel and baker it's all alphabetical right. so abel okay. leads off baker bats second charles bats third hmm well yeah, I was thinking maybe it's like the the military abbreviations. Right, like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Abel and Baker and Charles was in there. That's different from Charlie. Charlie, yeah. George is one of those, So, uh-huh. I, but that wouldn't apply to all of them, so I don't know if that helps. Yeah, good question. All right, so here's the lineups. If we assume that they mean these as first names, we have leading off Abel Lizotte. Lizot, who was a 1890s major leaguer, 1890s major leaguer, the only first name able up through the 1960s. I, I limited this to players who played before, like before 1970, I think. So I gave him a little wiggle room. But Abel de los Santos, more modern player, for instance, is excluded because clearly comes after this. But for the most part, it didn't matter. Like almost, I think that, in fact, the example I gave is the only one where it really mattered, where there might have been a slightly better major leaguer who was more modern. All right. So Abel Lizat, leading off first baseman, brief major leaguer. And then batting second, Baker Moore. In fact, he's an indie leaguer from 1997. That's the only first name Baker who's ever played professional baseball. And so I think that we have to say that, in fact, he doesn't exist. So there, there is no Baker. So you've got a, this, I mean, you've got a, a civilian is going to be batting second. <laughs> all right. And then batting third, catcher, Charlie Geringer. That's a good one. He's a Hall yeah. of Famer. Mm-hmm. Uh, batting fourth, you have third baseman, Daniel O'Connell, who is a major leaguer with 20-ish career war. Batting fifth, you have Edward uh, Eddie Collins, Hall of Famer, so that mm-hmm. he's good. Batting sixth, you have right fielder, Hall of Famer, Frank 
Robinson, he's good. Batting seventh, <laughs> you have uh, left fielder, Hall of Famer, George Herman Ruth. So he's good. So this is a pretty good lineup. Yeah. Uh, and then Hooker, never been a hooker. Never been a first name hooker in base yeah. professional baseball, majors or minors. So again, we've got a civilian batting eighth. Um, and then Irwin, we have a few, a bunch of choices, but all minor leaguers. No first name Irwin has ever been in the majors. So we're going with, because it's the funniest name, Irwin Uteritz, who was a minor leaguer in the 1920s and played shortstop. Also because he played shortstop and I needed a shortstop. So, all right. So we have two civilians. We have four Hall of Famers. We have a journeyman. We have a minor leaguer. And then we have a very brief, horrible major league appearance. So that's our, our lineup. The other lineup, we have John Abel was a minor leaguer. He's in the outfield leading off. Home run Baker is our third baseman. Actually, mm-hmm. I think we have to put him just for, I think we have to put him at like first base or something, but he's he's our best player in the last names. Home run Baker batting second. Ed, the poet, Charles, third baseman from the 1960s, is batting third. And then we have minor leaguer Bill Daniel, who topped out at Class C. We have nobody, last name Edward. So we have civilian batting fifth. Minor leaguer Albert Frank batting sixth. Minor leaguer Don George batting seventh. No major leaguers in any of those. And then we have pitcher Buck Hooker. He's a legit major leaguer, and he's batting eighth. And then uh, shortstop Arthur Irwin, also legit major leaguer, uh, solid career. He's batting ninth. So hmm. who wins? The question of who wins here is actually kind of tricky. So if you prorate their career wars over 600 plate appearances, then you basically you would have 20 combined war for the first namers. So, you know, your Frank Robinson and your Eddie Collins, 20 career war. Whereas for the last namers, you'd only have about 12 career war which is obviously less so the mm-hmm. first namers are winning but we have a civilian pitching for the first namers and then we have a civilian batting second and playing center field or or an outfield and outfield position now maybe george herman ruth pitches that changes things a lot but you have to figure that the war of a civilian is considerably less than zero like it could be up to like 20 ish negative 20 war <laughs> uh-huh. so i think the two civilians might actually uh, the two to one civilian advantage might actually cancel this out so i don't know the answer here i think i think i uh, i mean hooker <laughs> whose first name was ever hooker the first name before Baker Mayfield was ever Baker. <laughs> there is one major leaguer with the nickname Hooker, which you may have seen. I don't know if that counts, but Frank Whitman, who was a, a shortstop for the White Sox for two years in the 40s uh, and was blocked by Luke Appling at uh-huh. the time. Okay. His nickname was Hooker. I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, if that counts, then he's a major leaguer. You're right. If that counts, then this changes everything. If yeah. if that counts, if we're taking Baker and Hooker as as nicknames, I don't know if there's ever been a Baker, but... These these would make a lot. I think these would generally make more sense as first names than as last names. But mm-hmm. on the extremes, they, they kind of make more sense as last names than first names. So I just don't know. I have not answered this. I don't understand why they did this. I don't understand how this is in the official rule book. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of amazing to me that it's 60 years and this <laughs> hypothetical lineup still exists yeah. uh, nonsensically. <laughs> I think I'd take the one with Babe Ruth. I'll take my chances. It Mm -hmm. seems better. The thing is that I wasn't sure whether he could pitch because he's batting seventh. And now if he were batting fourth or third, that would make sense, you know, or or Mm -hmm. second or first. If they put Babe Ruth first, that would make sense, Uh, you know, in the top of the lineup, that would make sense. And if they put him ninth or eighth, then that would signal, well, they're treating him like a pitcher. That would make Mm -hmm. sense. But by putting him seventh, it implies that He's not a pitcher. If if they if he were a pitcher, he probably would be batting lower, unless they were giving him credit for being Babe Ruth, in which case he would be higher. So it to mm-hmm. me it suggests that Babe Ruth George batting seventh is being treated as an outfielder, as an outfielder who they don't see the value in, but nevertheless is an outfielder. All right. Well, have you thought of a, an answer to the question about a rule change? The tricky thing about this is that the rule change you want it to distinguish 
the leagues, but without funneling a lot of pitchers to one league or a lot of hitters to the other league, basically. You don't want to have a situation where, I don't think, where the player pools are dramatically different. And so the first rule that I thought of that I think would be fun to have different would be if you had one league where it's normal, baseball as we know it, but then the other league you had every inning start at the top of the order, for instance. And then you'd have a, a lot more dynamic game in that league where you'd have, uh, you know, obviously uh, the, the stars would bat a lot more often and the innings would have a lot more scoring and the rallies, you know, there'd be a threat of, there'd be a real chance of scoring in every inning. And, and that would be fun. I think that you could have that where you'd have the traditionalist league where you have three, two games, and then you have the modern league that juices offense, but without actually changing this the play you're not changing the ball or the playing field or or how much gravity there is you're simply creating a a scenario where the better players can exert their greatness a little bit more Mm -hmm. i think that would be pretty popular like i think that to a hypothetical young viewer that can see mike trout or whatever player they're interested in mookie betts or fernando tatis every every 20 minutes guaranteed right if if you knew that that tatis was batting every 20 minutes because you're going to start the lineup over. I think that would be a lot of fun. And the hypothetical young viewer would probably be interested in that. But the problem is that then every good hitter would want to play in that league and (laughs) every pitcher would want to play in the other league. So you would quickly have a sort, this great sort where you would instead, you would end up with, with one league that was 30 to 26 every day, every game, and the other league that was one to nothing every game. So how do you keep it uh, basically equal while having two different rules. And in a way, DH is sort of perfect with this. It affects the playing field by about, what, a quarter of a run per game. It gives you the sense that you're watching a more, the more offensive league, but without it being so different that like no pitcher would ever pitch in the American League or anything like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it does make certain players more likely to go to one league, but those are the players who just wouldn't have who jobs wouldn't have a, exactly. in the other yeah. league, so it exactly. doesn't affect anything. Exactly, yeah. and it's a small part of the player pool. So... So that was my idea, and I've, uh, but I've deemed it unworkable. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? I don't know if I have one either, but I don't know if there should be one. I don't know if I want one. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to what Brock says here about liking it because there was some difference and because this set baseball apart from other sports that just, you know, have conferences and the conferences are the same. And we're basically moving toward that model. We've already moved toward that model. We just call them leagues instead of conferences, but that's basically what they are now. And I like the idea that baseball is doing something different that set it apart from other sports. Like, I love that uh, baseball's playing fields are all different and have different dimensions. That, to me, is something that really sets it apart from hockey, from football, from basketball. But I also think that's a good thing. Like, it's just a, a thing that enhances the entertainment value. It makes the game more interesting, more analytically complex. And I don't really think there are any negative effects. I, I guess you could say it's not fair. You know, some players get stuck in parks that are not good fits for their skills. So that's unfortunate for them. But from a spectator standpoint, I think on the whole, it's great that we have those quirks. But I don't know that that is true for like a division between leagues between half of the teams and and another half of the teams particularly now that they're playing each other not just in the world series and the all-star game but throughout the season how do you do that without having it be destabilizing or, or giving one team an advantage it's hard to come up with any rule that is like significant that really makes a difference but doesn't give either side an advantage uh, it's really hard to come up with something like that and i don't know that we need it i mean maybe the different leagues construct is just an old-fashioned thing that we don't need anymore you know there have been a lot of things about baseball that have been discarded over time and it's been to the benefit of the game or at least not to the detriment and this just may be one of those things like if the leagues had not been different historically would we be saying we need to arbitrarily divide half the teams from the other and, and have them play a different brand of the game in some way i don't think so if you have the exact same rules, then then you don't. But I, I personally, as a personal matter of taste, I do like the leagues being a little different. And in order to do that, you do need to have something that differentiates them because it otherwise does feel completely artificial to act like 
these leagues are different, that yeah. we need to have an AL home run record or that we need to have even the World Series be between two arbitrarily divided leagues mm-hmm. if they're played exactly the same. And so I think I agree with the premise here, but that that is definitely a matter of taste. If you don't feel the need to have that, then I agree with you. I yeah. do think it adds something. I think it, I don't know why it adds something, but feels it feels it gives i don't know it creates a little bit of a sense that that there is an other that there is something like sort of that you can choose that you can sort of i don't know that there are two different worlds and when you're in another one you feel that kind of dis-ease that you're a tourist sort Mm -hmm. of and i think that that to me is a net positive i don't think that if there had been only one league all this time then I agree that I probably would not, you know, come up with it in my own head. Well, why don't we split it in two and make one of them different? Right. I, that that probably is not uh, an idea that would come to me if we didn't already have the two leagues. So maybe that's evidence that I'm just trying to hold on to an old antiquated notion. But I think I do like it. And of course, I have always lived in a world where the American League and the National League were essentially the same industry. If you are an mm-hmm. old timer, then the American League and the National League were were different businesses. They were they were different yeah. like they didn't necessarily talk to each other yeah, in the same presidents, different yeah. leadership structures. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and really sometimes a lot, you know, some rivalry and some really um different some in some cases really different levels of play and some um some bad blood between them and it, it it made a little bit of sense. But for me in my life it's always only been I mean, not technically because I like they had different umpires until the late 90s and stuff like that. But uh for the most part it's always only been that one league had the DH and the other league didn't have the DH. And so in order to maintain the two league construct at all, you you need to you need to have a different rule. That's the only thing that ever differentiated them for yeah. me. And so so unless I'm willing to just put them all into one 30 team league, which maybe I am, but unless I'm willing to do that, I need some rule difference, don't I? Yes, <laughs> I think so. And you could also say that if this rule difference produced a different game, then one of those versions of baseball probably is more pleasing to a greater number of people. I mean, a greater percentage of people would prefer one version or the other, unless you somehow perfectly calibrated it so that 50% of baseball fans like it this way and 50% like it that way. And this is great because they each can watch the game the way they prefer. Then there's probably one way that's more entertaining And then you're depriving people of the more entertaining version of the sport. And are you making up for that with the fact that you get some difference and maybe there's some entertainment that comes from there just being a difference? I don't know if you are. That's kind of how I felt about the DH and pitcher hitting. I just thought this is not fun for me to watch pitchers hit anymore. They are so terrible at it that I don't want to see this. And so if you're making me watch pitchers hit in half the games, then that is to some extent adversely affecting my enjoyment of baseball. Other people felt different, of course, and you know whether it was just because of tradition or because they legitimately thought that and continue to think that, probably a bit of both. But if you thought like, well, there's a little more strategy in, in certain ways if you have this, so it's worth having pitchers hit poorly or you know every now and then a pitcher does something good offensively and so that makes up for all the times that they don't do something good i didn't really feel it that way but you know for me i would have just said no it's better to just have real hitters hitting all the time that's more entertaining but obviously there was a, a schism there what if and i don't know if this qualifies as a rule change but i guess it would be in the rule book what if there was a, a dead ball league and a lively ball league you know, not uh, to the extent of like one league is is the current baseball and one league is uh, 1910 or something, but two degrees. And there's historical precedent for this because in the past, the leagues did use different balls and sometimes there was a, a dead ball league in a comparative sense. So what if you just had slightly different ball specifications so that one league was uh, lower scoring or fewer home runs and maybe more contact oriented, whatever would come out of that. And the other league was, uh, no, lots of homers and scoring. And so if you like 
more scoring and more homers and seeing the ball get hit a long way, then you have your league for that. And if you don't, if you prefer a different brand of baseball, then you have the dead ball league. Yeah, and I guess the analogy to tennis where some players are are like unbeatable on yeah. clay but very beatable in grass shows that even if it really seriously advantages you or disadvantages you in one or the other, that it doesn't make the sport like it doesn't disqualify the sport. Tennis players are perfectly yeah. happy living under these sort of separate surfaces, despite the fact that they greatly advantage or disadvantage them in different scenarios. Two questions here. Well, I guess maybe a comment and a question. I feel like at this point, Major League Baseball and maybe traditionalism generally doesn't want to acknowledge that the ball is the story, that the ball mm-hmm. is, you know, as as your pal Zach Cram wrote, an unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. um, that, that a lot of what we chalk up to as baseball is actually just like, well, maybe they got a good ball in that specific batch. They don't want us looking too closely at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so denying, ra- rather than like codifying the difference in baseballs, I think that maybe they would prefer to deny the difference in baseballs. So the, I don't know that it would be something that the league would would want. But yeah. would you, in this scenario, are you imagining that both leagues would would have similar run scoring, but in different ways? Or are mm. you imagining that you'd have a five you know a five run per game league and an eight run per game league i think you'd have to have some difference in scoring if you had any real significant difference in the ball probably so i think there would be some sorting like we were talking about in your scenario where some players would gravitate toward one league but it wouldn't be that dramatic it wouldn't be like I mean, I guess like maybe all the hitters would want to go to the higher scoring, livelier ball league, but probably not because like there are only so many jobs to go around and you'd still be, you know, relative to the other hitters in your league. You'd still be just as valuable and presumably just as well paid as long as everyone was like doing the proper adjustments for which league you were in. So maybe you'd just have more fun if you were hitting more home runs and scoring more. But it wouldn't be as great an incentive to like stay away from one league. But there might be certain players who, you know, like they just have a an uppercut swing or whatever, and they're just very flyball oriented, and so they would want to go to one league, and then the other league would be yeah, whatever. I mean, there would be certain skill sets that were slightly more conducive to success in one league or another, and that might be kind of interesting, like analytically, just trying to figure out like is this guy a a dead ball league player or a lively ball league player like how much better would this guy be if you were in the other league so that'd be kind of a fun problem to figure out Mm. and you'd still have both and it might be even valuable just from like a a testing you know kind of sandbox style like all right which version of baseball do people prefer like if it becomes clear that people like one way to play baseball much better then that could be the standard way. And then maybe we could finally figure out, like, how do we set the ball? Like, what is the ideal version of baseball? Because MLB never really seems to figure that out or at least never really seems to do anything about it. They never really seem to figure out, like, what should baseball look like? Okay, let's change the rules so that it looks like that. Or they don't do it in a very active way. So this might be a way to demonstrate, like, all right, well, look, suddenly uh, ratings are up in this league and down in the other league. So it turns out that, yes, people really do like seeing tons of home runs or maybe not. Maybe they like seeing contact and pitcher's duels. So you'd you'd get both. It's like, you know, MLB is always fluctuating from era to era, from one way to another. And in this case, you'd have like multiple eras operating alongside each other. It would be kind of fun. I'm going to end with one very simple suggestion that I think could draw a contrast between the leagues. And it is simply this. One league has the current baseline rules uh, where you may deviate three feet in either direction. And the other has, say, six feet in either direction. And so it okay. becomes a much more of a much more of a tag league. Okay. No, but not but not so extreme that like I mean you know as as you know I think as I think I think I know this but I'm pro no baselines at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, in, with no with baselines. some various other changes, but uh, yeah. but it wouldn't be that extreme. But yes, you have yeah. six feet instead of three feet. And you could still do interleague play, and it's not like, you know, you wouldn't be able to play. And that's another thing, I think, with the multi-ball scenario. 
it's not like these two teams would play each other and and you know they would be unable to or or there would be a huge imbalance or mismatch in any given game like you know maybe you'd have your roster constructed to be like a lively ball winning team but like you could still win a dead ball game pretty easily so it wouldn't be like you know upsetting the competitive balance terribly probably i guess yeah All right, that'll do it for today. Sam says he'll keep thinking about possible rules changes, so maybe we'll return to that topic. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Sean Price, Kofax Kropkin, Chris Wickey, Karina Longworth, and... Michael Cohen, thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastofangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. I'm leaving. Thank you.